0: And this week's show, again, is all about the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Senegal looking the best of the African teams so far. And we assess what's been overall a rather poor showing early on from the continent, with Egypt and Morocco out already. Also, we ask whether the video assistant referee is working well at the tournament. And Stuart concludes his series on
1: Africa's history at the World Cup. The host, South Africa drew with Mexico, lost to Uruguay, and beat France to finish equal on points with Mexico, but yet again eliminated on goal difference. And also
0: we hear from former Ivory Coast captain Cyril Domoreau. That's later on. But first, the World Cup action in Russia is coming thick and fast, and it took five games for Africa to get a win. It came from Senegal with the 2-1 victory over Poland on Tuesday. Let's start with the Taranga Lions, Solomon. They
2: played positively and they might get out of the group. Well, Steve, I really feel that the Taranga Lions of Senegal really did Africa proud. They came and played the sort of brand of football that football fans across the world are familiar with when it comes to African football teams. You know, positive football, fast-paced from the wings, uh, from the attack, counter-attacking, with, with so much speed that you outshine your opponent. And also they showed a lot of physicality, you know, the the physical part of the game. They really dominated the Polish, you know, and uh, I, I really feel they, they their play was very positive. You know, you have to also remember that a lot of the players in the Senegalese team are young players and so much energy for 90 minutes and they kept concentration for 90 minutes, which is what other African teams are filled to do. So I don't see how they're not going to get out of this group because they have two games up, Japan and Colombia. Uh, and I feel uh, Senegal should be able to pick three points from either of these teams and, and even hopefully four points. And that would be enough for them to qualify into the next round. And they deserve to go through the next round. They have the youngest coach, Aliou Sissa, at the this World Cup. And also an experienced coach who has played in Europe, who was captain uh, his team in 2002 to the quarterfinal of you know, the World Cup. So, you know, kudos to them. They've done so well.
0: So Senegal carrying a lot of African hopes. But Egypt are out after losses to Uruguay and to Russia. And Solomon, how much of a factor do you feel that the injury to striker Mohamed Salah was, the injury that he sustained in the Champions League final last month, uh, in terms of how Egypt performed in those first two games?
2: Yes, the injury to Mohamed Salah definitely affected the rhythm and the preparation of the Pharaohs of Egypt. You know, in the qualifiers he was their talisman, scoring crucial goals for them for them to be able to qualify and that injury in the Champions League final denied him the opportunity and the coach and the other players uh, the opportunity to prepare well with him and uh, the team is built around him and, and and I think the downside is so, uh, when you have a team that is built around one or two players and when they're injured or or, or not in great form, it affects the team and it affects the performance of of, uh, of the team. And we saw the Pharaohs of Egypt in their first game, you know, losing 1-0. You, you could actually see that, you know, if... Salah was in there, he he could have caused so much trouble for for his opponents, Uruguay. Also against Russia, you could see he wasn't fully fit, even though he got a goal. But you could see that he's uh, struggling and trying to adjust. And maybe he was also a bit rusty. And and I hope that he would be the last game against Saudi Arabia. He would be able to bring his magic
0: Yeah, let's hope at least that Egypt can end on a high against Saudi Arabia. And Morocco also out, but at least they did fight hard against Portugal in their second game.
2: Yeah, Morocco, you know, fought very well. Morocco, for me, was one of the teams I I tipped to go into the next round. But you cannot just play games and not concentrate for 90 minutes, which is what Morocco failed to do. And you could see the game that they lost to Portugal. You know, Ronaldo scoring that fourth-minute goal. And I felt the Moroccans were able to come back really strong. But the only thing, you know, stopping them uh, from really uh, making a statement was just the goal to equalise and hopefully get a winning goal. Uh, and in the second half, I thought they dominated. Uh, they, you know, 1-0 lost for me. I don't think that is a fair reflection of the game. I really feel that uh, they deserve a draw at least because that's what you get from such games, because they give a really good account of themselves, uh, and uh, they fought very well. They they were physically there. It's a shame, but uh, yeah, we, we hope to see what they will do in their last game.
0: And Morocco's last game will be against Spain, and Tunisia gave England a scare in their opener, losing 2-1, Harry Kane getting the winner in stoppage time. Uh, but to be honest, Tunisia didn't really impress, did they?
2: I felt they were a bit uh, not playing with too much motivation. There was no sense of urgency in their play. Even when they scored the equaliser, I-, I thought they would push hard to make sure that they pushed to win, not to get a draw. But against a team like England, you would try to make sure you concentrate you know, for the full 90 minutes, which is what they failed to do. They were not really impressive. It's sad that um, Tunisia is, is, is going to be going out that way. But overall... You know, I I hope that in their next games, I don't see how they would come back. Uh, looking at that group in itself and the caliber of other teams in the group, I don't see how they would come back. But I just hope that they're able to to make it and show forward and uh, use the next few games to really show what they're made of.
0: Yes, and next up for Tunisia is Belgium on Saturday. Uh, then a rather easier looking match against Panama. Uh, Thanks, Solomon. Let's hope that the African interest will continue beyond the group stage. Uh, Nigeria gave themselves a lot of work to do with their opening defeat to Croatia, but hopefully we'll be discussing some good news on the show next week. Now, Stuart Weir joins us from the UK. He's following the World Cup from there. And uh, Stuart, we talked a lot about the video assistant referee over the past year or so on the show. And the technology is being used at the World Cup and it's been featuring in a lot of the matches. Uh, Is the video assistant referee achieving its
1: purpose? Well, first of all, Steve, let's just clarify exactly what is happening. This is the first World Cup in which VAR has been used. We've had goal line technology in the past, but only to decide if the ball has crossed the line. And at this World Cup, VAR is being used for four specific cases. One, goals. When a goal is awarded by the match referee, his decision can be overturned by the video assistant ref if it has been shown that the match officials have missed an offside or a foul. Secondly, penalties. And now a penalty can actually be awarded by the intervention of the video assistant referee or a penalty awarded by the match referee can be cancelled by the VAR. So it can work both ways. Uh, Foul play meriting a red card can be awarded on the intervention of the video assistant referee, but clearly that is red cards only, not yellow cards. And finally, mistaken identity. If the referee makes the correct decision, for example, with a red card, but gives it to the wrong player, then the video assistant ref uh, can intervene. There's also a principle, which is quite important, that the video assistant referee will only intervene if a clear and obvious error has been made. Now, I would say that VAR has generally worked better than I expected it to at the World Cup. The best example was the Iran-Spain game. When Spain were leading 1-0, Iran put the ball in the net, obviously very significant because it was 1-0 at the time, and that would have been the equaliser. Immediately, the crowd was informed that the goal was being checked for offside. Now, it was clear that two Iranian players were in offside positions, but watching it on television at full speed, I was uncertain if either of the Iranian players had touched the ball, but with the benefit of the different camera angles and slow motion, it was clear that an offside player had touched the ball and the goal was correctly disallowed. I suppose the only negative was that the poor Iranian team had been celebrating the goal for about a minute before they were told it wasn't. VAR seemed to work less well in the England-Tunisia game when the referee awarded a penalty to Tunisia, which divided opinion. It wasn't a wrong decision, but perhaps it was harsh. But it certainly wasn't a clear and obvious error, so VAR could not intervene. But then later in the game, the England striker Harry Kane was clearly wrestled to the ground by defenders on two occasions. And VAR, apparently, we're told, reviewed these incidents and decided not to intervene. But you see, part of the problem here, Steve, is that penalty decisions are always a matter of opinion. They're not black and white. And you may think it's a clear penalty, and I may think it isn't. And that is why VAR can help a bit on penalties, but it's not black and white, like, for example, an offside decision. Is the player in front of the play or not? Now... After a quarter of the World Cup matches gone, we've had 10 penalties awarded, seven awarded by the match referee and three by the video assistant referee. Now, compare that with four years ago, and there were only 13 penalties in the whole competition, 13 in the whole competition compared to 10 at the quarter way stage. And it seems to me that this is partly because of the intervention of VAR to award penalties, but. Also, it seems that referees, because of VAR, have more confidence to make the bold decision. This has certainly been shown to happen in cricket, where VAR has been used for several years. And there is definite evidence that it has changed umpires' behavior and just given them confidence, as I say, to make that bold decision. Now, three other things have struck me about how VAR has operated at the World Cup. In most occasions when VAR overrules a decision, the match referee simply accepts it. But there have been several occasions when we've seen the match referee take up the option of going and watching the replay for himself on the pitch side television and then making up his own mind. I think that's an interesting development. Now, in some sports, like tennis and cricket, teams are allowed a certain number of opportunities to ask for a review. But that opportunity has not been given to World Cup players or coaches. Yet on a number of occasions, we have actually seen a player or a coach approach a match official and um, mime a TV screen with his hands, i.e. trying to influence the officials to refer something. And in rugby in Britain, we've used VAR for several years, and the VAR official is in the stadium. Uh, he meets the referee before the game, and they agree how they're going to operate together. In the World Cup, it's completely different and completely impersonal because the VAR officials are in a central location, thousands of kilometres from where the matches are taking place. So you don't have that personal touch uh, that you would get if the official is actually in the stadium yeah the video assistant
0: referee a big factor of this world cup in russia and to Stuart, what else
1: is catching your eye there well see it was interesting that in the early games we saw an awful lot of caution with seven early games nil nil at half time because it seemed the teams were more scared to lose than they were concerned to win And then own goals have been quite curious. You know, by Thursday of the second week, we've already had five own goals. And that's the the total that we had in 2014. So about a quarter of the game's gone and we have the same number of own goals. Sadly, the own goals have not helped the African teams, with Morocco, Nigeria and Egypt all conceding one we've also seen a lot of late goals and ironically again the africans have suffered we saw uruguay beating egypt with a goal in the 89th minute uh, morocco losing to iran with a goal five minutes into stoppage time england beating tunisia with a goal in stoppage time and ronaldo getting the equalizer for portugal against spain with just two minutes to go um We talked about Iceland being the smallest country in the World Cup with a population of 300,000. Well, apparently 96% of the population watched their first World Cup game on television. And as somebody said, probably the other 4% are in Russia watching it live. Interesting. Well thanks Stuart to uh, stay with us. This
0: is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And you can download our app and listen to the show anytime. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Once you've downloaded, you can listen to the show anytime on the app and access past programs too in our archive. You can also listen on our website. That's planetsportfootballafrica.com, dot com, and our Twitter handle is at planetsportfa. Our Facebook page is Planet Sport Football Africa and we're posting regularly throughout the World Cup on Facebook. You can give us your comments as the games go on. Uh, Now, we had several comments on Senegal's good showing on Tuesday as they were 2-1 victors over Poland. Moussa Ndou says they may be in the semi-finals. Uh, For me, the Lions are my team in African football. I believe that they can do it after seeing them play on Tuesday. Casim Oscar says, "I think Senegal will reach the round of 16. Uh, their success in their debut World Cup in 2002 was great when they reached the quarterfinals. Although I'm not expecting the same from this defensive side of Aliou Cisse. So, Casim thinking that Senegal will get to the second round, but maybe not to the quarterfinals." And Dauda Barr gave us a general comment on Africa's opening games at the World Cup, saying, football being football, miracles can always happen. And you never know, at this year's World Cup, some African teams can bounce back and heal their wounds in their future clashes. Well, we'll see if that will prove to be the case. Thanks for that, to Dauda. So on our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa, regular posts there. And you can always give us your comments as the World Cup progresses. Well, next here on the show, some facts and figures about the 2018 World Cup. Uh, we spoke on the show a few months ago about the factor of age in football and asked whether it's best to use mostly senior experienced players or to have plenty of youngsters in your team. And Stewart has some statistics on age at this
1: World Cup. I have just seen an analysis of the ages of all the World Cup squads. And I can tell you to start with that the oldest player is one of the Egyptian goalkeepers, Esam El Hadri, at 45, whereas the youngest is a 19-year-old in the Australian squad, Daniel Erzani. But if you take the average age for the squads, the oldest is Panama at more than 29 on average, and interestingly, the youngest squad is the Nigerians, who are just under 26. And in fact, the other four African countries, other than Egypt, are among the youngest. Uh, the youngest, as uh, I say, is Nigeria, at just under 26, then Tunisia, just over 26, Senegal, at 27 and a bit. Morocco, again, uh, 27 and a little bit. The Egyptians, and don't forget the 45-year-old goalkeeper, um, had an average of nearly 29. So what does this tell us? Um, Probably not a lot, but it is a bit of fun. And um, Germany uh, are also among the youngest on 27, and I think they are some people's favourites. So... Uh, a bit of fun. Perhaps it tells us something we'll know more after the event. Well, sure, but interesting nonetheless.
0: And uh, we talked about the factor of height on the show a while back, uh, whether it's important to have tall players in strategic positions in your team. And you've got something on this for
1: us, Stuart. Steve, I think this might be what you'd call the long and the short of the World Cup, because the shortest player in the World Cup is Shakiri. Uh, Stoke City and Switzerland, who is 1.65 metres. And at the other end of the scale, Lover Kalinic of Croatia, their striker, is over two metres tall. Now, in terms of biggest and smallest, in a different sense in terms of weight, the heaviest player is Roman Torres of Panama, who's got more than 100 caps as a defender for his country, and he weighs 97 kilos, whereas the lightest is Takishi Inoue of Japan, only 59. Be interesting if they come up against each other. Indeed. All right, thanks for that.
0: And the final part of Stuart's look at the history of Africa at the World Cup still to come. But next, we have an amazing story of faith from former Ivory Coast captain Cyril Domereau, who captained the elephants at the 2006 World Cup. Domero played for many big clubs in Europe, including Marseille and Monaco in France, Inter Milan in Italy, and Espanyol in Spain. He now runs an academy in Ivory Coast called the Cyril Domero Centre. In fact, it's been running since 1999, and Wilfrid Bonny is a product of the academy. In this interview from our archive, Stuart met up with Domero some time ago and first asked Cyril about the centre.
3: It's a training and education centre where I give young players from the Ivory Coast the chance to play in Europe, as many have never had the same opportunity that I had. It was my father who took me to Europe and gave me the chance to play for big European clubs and the chance of becoming a professional footballer. I offer them this chance in Abidjan. I coach them. It got started in 1999 while I was still in Milan. The players can train every day, food and accommodation are provided, and they have the chance to compete. There are youth tournaments for under-15 and under-17 teams. I currently have a team playing in the second division. There are about a dozen international players at the centre who I think could even make it to the World Cup or the African Youth Cup. There are players who are in Europe at the moment, by God's grace, and have the chance to become professionals. I'm achieving my aim to give young footballers this opportunity.
0: Now, Domoreau has a strong faith as a follower of Jesus Christ, but his journey to faith was a long one.
2: I was
3: at Marseille, and at the time I prayed, but not in the same way. I didn't fear God when I was at Marseille. I prayed, read the Bible, and one time a ball hit me in the eye, and I spent five days in hospital. I called my sister and said, Come over, I'm injured, come over to my house. So she came and we were sat down. My parents at that time would send me lots of lucky charms and fetishes to protect me from harm. I used to wear a ring, supposedly for protection. So I was with my sister and she was speaking to me. I was lying on the sofa and she was sitting next to me and began to talk to me about God. For years my sister had always been telling me to take off the ring, saying it was useless. She talked to me about prayer, and slowly but surely, since when I gave my life to the Lord, there I was ready, and I surrendered everything to God.
0: Stuart asked Domero more about taking off the ring, which was a big step for him.
3: For me, the ring protected me. If someone wanted to hurt me, they couldn't. I believe it must have been the Lord that wanted my sister to come, given that I'd been hit in the eye with the ball. I was forced to rest, so I asked my sister to come. I threw out all the fetishes, charms and tokens that I had. When my sister left, I started training again and I was due to play against Paris Saint-Germain. I went to a church in Marseille to pray. After I'd prayed, I left the church and went to get into my car. I had prayed and the priest had blessed the cross that I was wearing on a small chain. I went over to my car and I called back a number who tried to ring me, and it was Inter Milan who'd called me to say that they were interested and they hoped that I would come for the season starting next week. While I was talking, I realized that I had to break away from what I'd known before so that my life could move on to the next level, another stage. That's it.
0: Finally, Domero explains the difference that Jesus makes in his life. <laughs>
3: For me, ever since I came to the Lord, I'm no longer afraid. I used to be scared, but now I'm at peace. It's that peace, exactly that, for me, in your heart and spirit. It's also respect for others. For me, it's that too. As a footballer, it's my daily routine, as is the Lord. God is my life. Football is my life. Football keeps me alive, but God is the source of my life. In the morning, when I get up, I think about football first about God. For me, God is part of my daily life.
0: Well, that story of faith from former Ivory Coast captain Cyril Domoreau, who captained the Elephants at the 2006 World Cup and played for clubs like Marseille, Monaco, Inter Milan and Espanyol. Uh, that from our archive we now to the final part of Stuart's series on Africa's history at the World Cup. Uh, last time he took us up to 2002 when Senegal reached the quarterfinals. Uh, this week Stuart finishes off with the last three editions of the World
1: Cup from 2006 to 2014. The 2006 World Cup followed the same pattern, 32 teams, five of them from Africa. What was unusual was that Tunisia should be joined in the World Cup by four teams making their first ever World Cup final appearance, Angola, Côte d'Ivoire, Ghana and Togo. Tunisia again qualified and again failed to make an impression. A draw with Saudi Arabia was the only point they got. Togo qualified for the first time, but lost all three games to France, Switzerland and South Korea. Côte d'Ivoire in their first World Cup, found themselves in a near-impossible group. They lost 2-1 to Algeria, 2-1 to Netherlands and beat Serbia in the final game, but it was not enough. Angola lost to Portugal and then drew with Iran and Mexico, which left them in third place and eliminated. You know, World Cups are won and lost by small margins and one more goal against Mexico would have seen Angola progress. Ghana lost their first game to Italy, but then they beat the Czech Republic 2-0 and beat the USA 2-1 to make the last 16 at the first attempt. There they met Brazil and lost narrowly. In 2010, the World Cup came to Africa for the first time, being hosted in South Africa. The host South Africa drew with Mexico, lost to Uruguay and beat France to finish equal on points with Mexico, but yet again eliminated on goal difference. Nigeria lost to Greece and Argentina and drew with South Korea to make no further progress. Cameroon lost all three games against Japan, Denmark and Netherlands to finish pointless. Cote d'Ivoire again found themselves in a difficult group. They drew with Portugal, beat North Korea, but lost to Brazil. And finished third behind Portugal and Brazil. Ghana repeated their heroics from 2006 by beating Serbia, drawing with Australia, and losing to Germany. Now, we have bemoaned the lottery of goal difference, but this time it worked in Ghana's favour as they progressed, taking second place from Australia on goal difference. In the last 16, Ghana beat. USA, just as they had four years previously, and in the quarter-final they drew 1-1 with Uruguay, missing a last-minute penalty when the ball struck the crossbar and then losing the penalty shootout. The 2014 World Cup was in Brazil and Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, Algeria and Ghana represented Africa. Ghana were unable to repeat their great achievements of the previous World Cups. This time they lost to the USA and to Portugal and drew with Germany. Cameroon again lost all three games to Mexico, Croatia and Brazil, scoring one and conceding nine goals. Cote d'Ivoire beat Japan but lost to Colombia, leaving them to need a draw with Greece to go through. They seemed to have secured the draw, when Wilfrid Bonney equalised with 15 minutes to go, but Greece got a penalty in stoppage time, scored the penalty, qualified and broke Ivorian hearts. Algeria lost their opening game to Belgium 2-1, but then beat South Korea and drew with Russia to qualify for the last 16, where they lost to Germany only in extra time. 2-1, 2-1, a great performance by Algeria. Nigeria again made it to the knockout stage, defeating Bosnia and drawing with Iran, and only losing to Argentina, 3-2. But in the last 16 round, they were knocked out by France, and so their dream ended. Well, thanks, Stuart. And uh, what memories, uh,
0: that Suarez handball in 2010, denying Ghana a place in the semifinals... And 2014, not a particularly good World Cup for Africa, besides Algeria, who did really well, and it was tough for them to get Germany in the round of 16. Uh, There were, at least, though, two teams that made it out of the group stage, and it may well be tough for Africa to match it this time around. We'll see how things unfold at this World Cup in Russia. This weekend, Tunisia play Belgium on Saturday. On Sunday, Senegal take on Japan. And then on Monday, Egypt and Morocco will play their last games at this World Cup, as they're out already. Egypt facing Saudi Arabia and Morocco playing Spain. Well, that's it for this week's show, but uh, throughout the World Cup on Facebook, we'll be updating regularly, and you can always post your comments there on any games and incidents that catch your attention. That's on our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa. From me, Steve Vickers in Harare from Solomon Ashams in South Africa and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening and Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.